so Dave, you sound much more clear. Yes. Than I remember. Yes. Is a, uh, are, are you more fiber or something? What's, what's going on? More proprietary. More proprietary. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's yep. un- counterintuitive. I think, yes. you get, I think you get kicked off the show for saying something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to, yeah, I have to get a lotion or something for the hives. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yep, yep. I no, I finally bit the bullet and I got uh Skype to work on RAL seven. Um and which uh, you gotta admit the audio quality is uh typically much better with Skype than other uh video conferencing uh tools that, that we've used. But um it, it, yeah. yeah. But it was it was it it wasn't hard to get set up, but it wasn't like build in like I was used to uh, like you need to have some packages in Apple um, in order to do it but in this case there was like uh, the Skype is a a 32-bit RPM and in order to to get it to work you needed a 32-bit compatibility library um, which was not in Apple uh, for RHEL 7 and so uh, some dude put the RPM together and put it up on his repository and uh, once I added his repo um, I was able to yum install Skype and it works like a champ. So, um, it's pretty cool. Well, that's great. And also a nice response to, uh, folks who believe that uh, using proprietary software is somehow going to make their lives easier, uh, or less complicated. Um, yeah. cause it turns out that proprietary software is just as complicated to manage as open source. Um, yeah, I guess the moral of the story is software is hard. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, just, I was away for like two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Straight. Jumping back and forth. Yeah. yeah uh, jumping back and forth between uh, uh, the uh, grandmother's place, uh, or rather my son's grandmother's place, my wife's mother's place, um, and Washington. Um, it was a little trying. Uh, now ready to burn all of the clothes that I had taken with me. Um, I'm just worn out looking at them. Uh, mm. And... Uh, so I'm going to set a bonfire in the backyard after we're done recording this. Um, uh, anyway, it's nice to be home. Uh, babies love beaches. This is mm-hmm. what I learned. Um, mm. And also grandmothers have an amazing ability to uh, to teach children to sleep. Um, oh. My wife is more thankful, uh, I think, than I have ever seen anyone uh, at the, the kind of skill and care her mother brought to bear on our child. Um, he is now waking up only once a night, mm. uh, which is a monumental triumph. So, yeah. uh, if you have, uh, if you have baby sleeping problems and you have not yet engaged your parents in the, uh, in the solution, uh, I recommend you do so immediately. Uh, yep. they work magic. Yeah. Yep. 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 They've, they've had a lot of practice. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so what, what are we, uh, what are we talking about in the show today, Dave? Yeah. So we got, uh, monkey selfies. We have elephant based coffee and, uh, we're going to do some yak shaving with OpenStack. Man, I love me some yak shaving. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so, if uh, uh, if folks want to uh, see the monkey selfie uh, that we are that we just referred to, uh, where which website do they go to? They need to go to dgshow.org. So, D's and Dave, G's and Gunner Show.org. Excellent. And uh, and there's actually some great cutting room floor material uh, this week. Um, we uh, we you found this uh, very creepy uh, IBM corporate songbook from 1937. Yeah, um, it's like a hymnal. Back when, yeah, back when exactly like a hymnal, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's see, we got a uh, what else is there? Oh yeah, the uh, steampunk uh, bandwidth gauge uh, for your internet connection, which mm-hmm. looks super sweet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the idea of, uh, of taking like uh, you know a small piece of electronic equipment, like say a, a router, right, or a cable modem, and housing it inside like a large copper boiler. Um, mm-hmm. I really <laughs> I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, we've also got the uh, that glossary of uh, government acronyms that Ben Balter is putting together. Um, you and I know how how much time we spend uh, unpacking government acronyms. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a bunch of them: FISMA, uh, Section 508, VPATS, uh, and so forth. Um, so Ben Balter, who's a GitHub's evangelist, uh, put a GitHub repo together of those acronyms, and so you can actually go online, uh, see all those acronyms defined, and also put in pull requests if you see uh, acronyms that are missing. Nice. Yeah, it's cool. So I recently, Dave, I recently uh, turned on SSL on my blog on the uh, technology and the job is no excuse. Nice. Nice. So you, yeah. you got the certificate and all that? I did. I did. And it was uh, it was mostly painless. Uh, Who'd you go with? So I, uh, so I went with the... Is that... Uh, mm-hmm. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? Is that painless? That's uh, it was that painless. Um, that's that's how you know it's a commodity, as mm-hmm. when you can't even remember who your vendor was. Um, the uh, I was inspired by uh, by a friend of the show, Eric Mill, uh, who's uh, become this uh, big evangelist for ubiquitous SSL, um, kind of, uh, and the idea is to kind of raise the bar on uh, surveillance, right? Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we want to make sure that SSL isn't something that's only used by people who are trying, who have secrets to hide. Um, mm-hmm. SSL should be general. Um, and it's also good security hygiene, right? Um, which the websites that I visit and what I, what information I send back and forth between those websites is, uh, should be nobody's business but my own. And so the best way to uh, promote that is uh, to actually do it myself. So mm-hmm. I did as an experiment, I started on my own personal blog. It's not like I'm collecting credit card numbers or anything, but um, yet. it does make me feel better. Not yet. <laughs> but it does make me feel better too. I have stuff under SSL, if if only for uh, you know when I log in with my own username and password to you know uh, post something new. But anyway, um, so that was a, that was a really nice experience, and and in the course of it, I, I ran into this uh, conversation on uh, one of the W three C mailing lists. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the group that kind of manages all the worldwide web standards, and uh, it's the web app security uh, mailing list. And this guy from uh, Google, Chris Palmer, uh, was advocating for SSL encryption, mandatory SSL encryption on web applications. Um, and, uh, he said something really smart here, which I will now quote in full. He says, uh, I think it's fair to ask developers who want to run long running threads in the background on people's phone, which tracks people's locations, why they think that power should be granted to unauthenticated man in the middle mangled code. Mm-hmm. So, hmm, yeah, no, great point, right? Uh, uh, web applications are now much more sophisticated than they've ever been before. Um, you know, now that web standards support stuff like location awareness, um, mm-hmm. and the idea that you would run an application and give an application permission to do basically anything in your browser uh, without having that protected by SSL uh, does actually seem crazy. And the the light went on for me uh, when I realized that you know I would never. Uh, install an application on my phone that wasn't co- assigned, right? That that uh, wasn't like kind of authenticated. That I want to make sure right. that I have the real deal installed on my phone. And uh, for some reason, I've been very, very comfortable running web applications in my browser, which have not been signed. Um, mm-hmm. And so kind of thinking about SSL as like code signing for the web, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really anyway. I thought that was a really neat idea. Um, and Chris closes his email with uh, "With great power comes a tiny amount of responsibility." 
uh, which, is, <laughs> which I which I appreciate. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's a, that's what I got on SSL. Uh, I think the, the transition for a technology job is no excuse was easy enough. I think I may actually turn SSL on on a DG show here in a, in a little bit. Yeah. So what what about like apps on your phone that are like essentially HTML five based and you know how do you like I wonder what are the ramifications for that that if they're not using SSL to or, or I don't even know how the apps are designed and work, but I would presume that the app is talking to a backend server somewhere, and if that that communication isn't encrypted, it's it's more than just running apps inside your web browser, but it's like running apps like native apps on your phone that could be talking to unencrypted sources that could inject stuff um, to do bad things. Yes, yeah, no, that's that's right, um, and you know the tricky thing, especially with with apps on your phone, is. Uh, you have even less visibility into their internal workings than you do on your computer, right? If I'm on my computer, I can install, uh, you know, a network sniffer um, mm-hmm. and take a look at the track. If I really cared, I could put a network sniffer on and see what packets are moving in and out and see which are encrypted and which aren't. Um, that's a lot harder to do on your telephone. Um, yeah. Well, and, 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 and you can't so, right-click show source yeah, of, exactly. of the web page and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, uh, having stuff be open source is pretty important, but also this notion of provenance, right? Um, uh, making sure that uh, the code is coming from the person who, coming from the person you think it is, um, I think is 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 really important. And you know, that's supposed to be one of the things that a marketplace is is provides, mm-hmm. um, which I think Apple does probably a better job than Google at vetting the authors of the applications. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, preventing kind of knockoff or, or workalike applications that um, you know aren't as secure as the as the real thing. Um, but anyway, uh, th- we could do a whole show on what a mess uh, application security is. Um, but uh, anyway, I, 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 now I'm now in a in a I'm now going through a phase of thinking about encryption and where I can uh, introduce more encryption into my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. Yep, and, and two-factor authentication. And two-factor authentication. Uh, you know, in recent news with the, uh, you know, all these horrible pilfered uh, celebrity photos, um, that uh, which I think is just absolutely abhorrent. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a, a terrible thing to have happened. Um, a lot of people kind of reflexively responded with, oh, well, you know, you need to turn on two-factor authentication, um, and that would prevent people from... Uh, that would prevent people from uh, attacking your, getting your password for iCloud or, or any other web service, um, which is true. But uh, apparently the way that these folks got into these photos uh, was they used a, not even a back door, it was a side door. Hmm. Um, uh, apparently if you can, they brute forced the passwords uh, and they brute forced the passwords through, if you try and do it through the Apple website, um, it will lock you out after a certain um, number of failures, right? right? Yeah. Um, but it turns out that the where's my iPhone feature, uh, which is kind of separate and apart from the regular Apple login system, uh, the where's my iPhone feature does not have that lockout, but uses the same username and password. Uh, hmm. And so they were able to brute force their way into the account using that kind of side door uh, in order to get access to, uh, to their stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, lesson learned. Um, you can take all the precautions you want, to, but you are still only as secure as uh, the people who take care of your data uh, allow. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and people make mistakes. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, enough of the homily. Uh, Dave, Dave you, you've got a, got a joke kit of the week for us? Yes. Yeah. So um, a monkey selfie cannot be copyrighted, uh, U.S. regulators say. So... Um, 
So basically, I guess what happened was uh, this guy was uh, taking uh, pictures of, of wildlife and um, I, he dropped his camera or something and then a monkey picked it up and the monkey took a, a selfie, took, the monkey took a picture of itself and then um, it's like he posted it somewhere or whatever and, um, and then it ended up on Wikipedia. And and this guy went after Wikipedia saying that, hey, this is cop this is my copyright, this is my photograph, you're not allowed to do that. Um and and so you need to take it down. And Wiki Wikipedia said, Well, no, it's uh and 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 I guess it went to the, the copyright office and all that. And the the copyright office actually issued a ruling. So it was a, a one thousand two hundred twenty two page report, which is crazy, um, on this saying that a photograph taken by a monkey is unprotected intellectual property. Oh, okay. So I know a little bit about this. That report is not focused specifically on the monkey. Um, oh, okay. That report, that, that report was actually a, uh, a kind of an update or a refresher. Um, I think the last one had been issued 15 years ago. Okay. And so this is kind of like a compendium of everything the Copyright Office knows or kind of all the rules and all the policies. Um, and so they issued this report. It just happened to be well-timed with this monkey thing. Um, uh, and so they, ins they inserted language into the report about the monkey, but the, the report is actually much more comprehensive. Um, yeah. And in fact, from what I understand, the people at the Copyright Office were disappointed in that they released you know this compendium of like 15 years of effort uh, from everybody <laughs> in the Copyright Office, and it was reduced to the headline, uh, Monkeys Can't Get Copyright. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I can see how that might be disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I have all these guinea pig selfies. They're unprotected now. Um, but yeah. And but to me, it's like I'm surprised that that that's the case. You know, like what if you know, what about like there's other ways that you could do like art? Like I'm thinking like Jackson Pollock or whatever that would, you know, mm -hmm. throw art or throw paint at something. And then it's like, oh, well you could probably assert copyright with that. Um, and, and so instead of the, like using some system that throws the paint, you replace that mechanical system with, um, a monkey and w are both of those uncopyrightable or it sounds like the monkey one isn't, but if, what if you use a machine instead? Right. And uh, also, it depends a lot. It seems like it would depend a lot on context, right? Uh, because if I just, if my camera was left accidentally and the monkey accidentally picked it up and accidentally took a photo, that seems qualitatively different than I'm going to do a performance art piece where I give a thousand monkeys a thousand cameras uh, mm. and then display and then display the photos that they took. Um, yes. That seems, those seem like two very different things. And I guess the and I guess the Copyright Office distinguishes between the two. They say they, they will not register works produced by nature, animals, or plants. Likewise, the office cannot register a work purportedly created by divine or supernatural beings, although the office may register a work where the application or deposit copy state that the work was inspired by a divine spirit. <laughs> Which is very funny. Yep. <laughs> um, it's a, the Copyright Office is apparently staffed by medieval theologians. Um, <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, uh, but but this idea of of inspiration uh, is kind of part of the context that you take into account when you're when you're uh, granting a, a copyright. Uh, it's interesting. In other news, um, th did you see this article about um, there's this Kickstarter uh, where um, I guess they raised fifty one thousand um, pounds to do uh, data driven crowdsourced citizen journalism and they, and what they were able to do with um that is that they were able to essentially use um open source intelligence like not 
like open source, but op openly sourced intelligence information mm -hmm. to track down um, ISIS camps. Neat. Yeah. They're like trolling social media, stuff like that. And based on the photos and mm -hmm. like GPS tags on tweets and stuff like that, they're, uh, they're, they're discovering the location of these folks. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some examples that they had in this article. It was pretty awesome. Um, but it was, and it, not only did they look at the metadata, but even looking at the actual picture where it's like, oh, well, here's a, here's an ISIS march and there's a bridge in the background and Oh, that that looks like a bridge in in Tikrit in Iraq, and and it's like, oh, I'll be darned, there it is, and they're able to to do um, to figure all that out. So I thought it was pretty cool um, to be able to do that was interesting. But I I wonder too, it's like if that the process of doing that, it's like cool that that is you know it it sort of puts the um, what is it the sterilizing effect of sunlight on on things like on 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 things like that, but would that, you know, would uh, U.S. intelligence, does that sort of like tip their hand? It's like maybe they knew that and they were keeping it to themselves. And, and now that sort of uh, let the ISIS people know that they were being watched and then now they got to do something different. One of the interesting thing about ISIS is their, uh, is their operational security. Uh, so I, re I remember reading an article that... Um, the ISIS is functionally dark uh, from the point of view of the intelligence services uh, because they learned long ago in Afghanistan and then in Syria that if they use mobile phones, uh, they are making targets of themselves. And mm -hmm. so they go all the way back and actually have people running as couriers, like on horseback and stuff, um, to move messages between, uh, between wow. different groups. Yeah, um, which apparently is frighteningly difficult uh, to untangle, right? If you're an intelligence service, you're you're accustomed to sitting back in your in your uh, in your fancy dot com chair and uh, with headphones on, uh, listening to electronic transmissions. But uh, the, this group apparently generates very few electronic transmissions, except for their PR effort, um, and so they become very very difficult uh, to to infiltrate uh, in that way, which is uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, uh, also I wonder, I mean, this is, ISIS is, they're not dumb. Um, mm -hmm. they are, you know, kind of famously savvy to this kind of thing. I would be surprised if they weren't taking advantage of this, right. Uh, by putting up false tags, um, or, you know, basically throwing chum in the water, um, mm -hmm. to, uh, to kind of misdirect, uh, their adversaries. Um, mm -hmm. that would be, that would make perfect sense. They, they, they seem more than capable of doing something like that. Now you're giving them ideas. Now I'm giving them ideas. Well, now I'm, yes, now I'm giving them ideas. The Stasi is going to tell ISIS. <laughs> the Stasi is going to tell ISIS. I, uh, uh, related to that, you know, we, we don't really get into politics too much in the show and for good reason. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I did want to, I did want to uh, give a recommendation for a podcast that I just started listening to. In fact, I just finished listening to the very first episode. Um, it's called Hardcore History. Have you mm -hmm. heard of this? No. Um, so, in terms of podcast, it is breathtakingly audacious. Um, the last podcast I listened to was about two and a half hours long. Uh, and it's a monologue. It's just one guy talking. Um, wow. And the topic is the history of uh, kind of terrorism and state security in the United States. Uh, and the story starts back with the French Revolution and goes all the way through uh, uh, American history up to the anarchists at the uh, turn of the 20th century um, and how that turned into the Red Scare uh, and then into the second Red Scare after World War II uh, and 
you know, the story that he tells is really fascinating, especially in uh, in light of today and the Snowden revelations and everything else. Uh, you see this kind of unbroken chain from the turn of the 20th century to now of there has always been an adversary that is so dangerous and so virulent that we seem willing to suspend any number of uh, any number of, of amendments to the uh, to the Constitution in order to uh, in order to control them, right? Uh, so thinking about like J. Edgar Hoover and mm-hmm. some of the just horrific things he did with surveillance, uh, the fact that FDR actually had a list of uh, people who he felt were threats uh, to the war effort, uh, and he would, apparently FDR would even go so far as if you wrote him a letter saying that you were opposed to the war and that you wanted it to end. Uh, your name, he would then hand that over to J. Edgar Hoover, and that name would end up on a list. And that list was the list of people that were going to be rounded up uh, oh. uh, once FDR, you know, declared a uh, declared a national emergency. Um, it just really fascinating. Really opened my eyes, uh, and really and provided some much needed context uh, to this uh, to all the uh, kind of surveillance and national security stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, anyway, strongly recommend it. Hardcore history. Go listen to it. Yeah, we'll have to put a, I'll put a note to put a link to that. i got to check that out. And then for people that complain about our podcast being too long, they can listen to this one. <laughs> I think I, I felt vindicated at the end of it. So speaking of speaking of surveillance, you found a new vector for uh, for surveillance, right? Yes. Yeah, so basically if, if, um, if I touch the VGA port of your laptop, I could suck out your PGP encryption key. With, like physically yeah. through my finger. <laughs> Isn't this, a, I, I mean, going all the way back to stuff like Tempest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, you can, uh, where you can basically use an apparatus to like listen to what's on somebody's monitor. Um, mm-hmm. This kind of thing is just exhausting to think about. Um, mm-hmm. The number of like side channel attacks uh, that you can make on somebody's equipment. It just, um, it makes you want to give up, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because it well the way this works is it just basically if you physically touch one of the like the metal contacts coming out of the computer like a USB port or um, heatsink fins or uh, yeah the VGA port or whatever um, you're able to detect the electrical fluctuations that that come out of it and if you're de- you know if you're running like GNU PG and you're decrypting your encryption keys based upon the um, uh, the electrical uh, fluctuation, um, you're able to uh, capture that information and use that to figure out what the keys are. Um, and, you know, it's to me, it's like, yeah, that's kind of cool. But it's like if somebody's like touching my VGA port, I would be a little bit suspicious and I probably wouldn't be decrypting my uh, PGB keys at that time. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but it is interesting that people could pull that out. and And, you know, they use the... Like say like the the contacts from your finger like like um, in the moisture from your finger to be able to pull out um, uh, to pull out the electrical current and then you're able to capture that in some sort of device that you could you could use uh, offline to uh, to figure out what the keys are. That's bananas. That's mm-hmm. bananas. I, I just I'm in wonderment at how ingenious that is. Um, that's really amazing. As a, but as is a as a practical matter, though, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like an attack you should have to like expect or be worried about. It seems like the kind of thing that would work in a lab and not in a Starbucks. 
Yeah. Yeah. And unless there's some way that like, you know how we, we've talked about this before with like USB ports and people randomly uh, plug in their phone into to charge and you don't know what's listening on the other end. It, it could be more than just a data connection. It could be pulling the electrical um, current from you know you charging your cell phone or something maybe. So while I'm putting on my Faraday pajamas, uh, what's up with Lauren this week? Yep. So she, well, what was interesting, she had a big week. So we had the um, the uh, the show that Charles Peachock did in Kent, and that was great. We got to go backstage and see her uh, system in action and everything. So it's it's really cool where um, he has a remote control switch connected to the Pi Brella, which is connected to the Raspberry Pi. And whenever he's on stage and he wants to start the, the juggling pin sequence, he pushes a remote control that he keeps in his pocket. It sends a wireless signal to the to that remote switch that'll close a circuit on the Pibrella, and then that'll launch the pin. So we got to go backstage, see that all set up, and then we were able to sit through the show and, and see him do everything, and everything worked flawlessly. So that, that was pretty cool. And then we went, um, and then the next day, um, uh, Lauren couldn't make it, but uh, had the opportunity to uh, go up to Case Western with Charles and uh, demo the the system to um, the band um, OK Go. Um, so that that was pretty cool. And then uh, they immediately invited him to um, perform at uh, a concert they were doing that night um, and and uh, using Lauren's setup. So that was pretty awesome. Oh, that's great. That's very yeah. cool. Wonderful. Yeah. And then when she wasn't doing that, she was writing uh, articles for opensource.com. So um, her that juggling opensource.com article, it was like number five of the top articles of the week. And then immediately on the heels of that, she came out with an article um, about what she uh, – interviewing her boss at NASA. And that was like uh, last week, that was the number two article of the week on opensource.com. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah. Well, now she's starting back up to school, so I get a chance to catch up on her on, on my publications. So she's head down <laughs> in homework and algebra two and all that. So I get to, um, I get to catch up a little bit on her. Yeah. That's, that's what you got to do, Dave, is you got to weigh her down with, uh, with, you know, kind of the regular drudgery of schoolwork. Uh, make mm-hmm. sure she doesn't, uh, make sure she doesn't overachieve. Uh, yeah. You gotta, you gotta squelch that. You, you, you've got to be a proud father. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. She's presenting. By the time this goes to air, she will have already presented, but she she has her presentation at the Akron Log on Thursday. So um, she's presenting on the, on the um, Raspberry Pi Juggling Club setup. So looking forward to that. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah, that's you know, I hear news like that uh, and all the wonderful things that Lauren's doing. It's making me think that uh, I need to be doing some uh, doing some more education myself. I need to go back to school, and maybe learn a, learn a useful trade. Um, and and you were you were recently uh, you recently went back to school as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, just to make sure my my skills don't atrophy. Um, and and the other part is it like with my RHC and RHCA and all that. It goes since I got it with RHEL five. Uh, the rel five era, I guess it it, it goes from um, being active to inactive sixty days after rel seven launch. So it's like, mm-hmm. what? so now I need to, well, I want to recertify for my RHC and and get that turned back on again. And one of the ways that I've been doing it is, um, I I signed up for one of the classes that we have. That's um, it's uh, 
it's it, we call it role-based learning, where it's uh, self-paced, where you basically have a lab book with videos, and and you have a, a live access lab that you access over the web through like a a web page, and then you have like a, a VNC client that you do all the lab work in. And I was doing oh, and that like f- a and like a octagonal maps and like rolling d20s and stuff. No. No. Uh, oh, sorry. You said role-based. I thought it was like, okay. No. Sorry. Go ahead. But it was it was pretty cool. So it was basically to help prepare for the RHC class. And I, I surprisingly, I, I I wasn't sure if I would like uh, the this CBT based training as much as I would like the classroom. But I actually I'm, I'm starting to like it more now that I understand how to work it and everything. Than taking a week away from work to travel somewhere to sit in a class and and take the class all week and and everything. This is it's self-paced so I could do it at my leisure and I've been working on it in the evenings and weekends and and if there are areas where like I didn't quite get the material I could like redo the labs and all that at my own pace instead of just mowing through it and moving on to the next topic to fit everything you know in a classroom mm-hmm. and it, the self-paced stuff is it cuts both ways too right because um, you need to be motivated to actually complete it I know the, the completion rates for this kind of class yes. is usually not great uh, because you're not really you know, if you don't have to show up in a room, you're not really inspired to stick with it unless you've got like a carrot, like a certification, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that, I guess that helps. Um, but that's great. I'm glad. And so the quality of the quality of the training was as good as what you would get in, in the classroom setting, you think? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's basically the, the videos are, it's basically you do like, you watch a video of a lecture, um, like, oh, hey, we're, we're talking about Firewall D and, and you, you see that for like 10 minutes and then there's some examples and then there's a practice and then maybe there's another section with videos and practice and then there's a lab and then you once you're all done, you could run, um, run a command and it'll score your lab based upon you know, how you did and tells you whether you did it or not, um, did it right or not. And it was, it's really nice. I, I really like it. And the other reason, you know, I, I was like, um, one of the other motivating factors for me wanting to do it was that I'm, you know, it's like I know RHEL 5 cold, I know RHEL 6 cold, but with all the new things in RHEL 7 with Firewall D and System D and, and all that stuff, I, this is a, another great excuse for me to, like, learn uh, more about these and, and get some hands-on experience with it. Um, so it's, it's been a really good experience. Yeah, right on. That's great. Um, and also without the muss and fuss of having to set up, uh, uh, set up a system at home, right? Um, yeah. Or, yeah. Like, and it's typically more than one system, right? Cause you're, it's mm-hmm. client server. So you need to set up a client and, and I, I used to do that for when I did the RHCA using VMs, um, which wasn't bad, but I still had to recreate a lab environment like in, you know, and, and try to reverse engineer what I think, th- what the labs would be. Um, where here it's like I could just go right to it and I can click a button and and reset the system and get it back up and running and everything. So it's it's really nice. And then the other thing is from a exam perspective, um, from and I, I got to look into this more. The um, there's like I could do. I don't have to go to a classroom to take the exam either. I can I can go to one of the training facilities that we have. Um, but do it at a kiosk where it's like I could just like just walk in, do the exam, and then leave. I don't have to wait for it, uh, a full classroom to, to convene for me to do it. That's great. Yeah, and there's that's, that's really there are two of them in Cleveland. So wow. Yeah, yeah. So I have my choice. Oh, right on. That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So th- this actually segues clumsily into uh, two wonderful pieces of news um, for folks mm-hmm. that, that have it. I mean, the, the value of using virtual machines and kind of pre-set up environments in order to do this like classwork uh, for exactly the same reason. Uh, we've just released uh, the, an open virtual appliance uh, for OpenStack. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are interested in evaluating Red Hat's OpenStack distro, uh, you can download an OVA uh, and uh, get it up and going kind of right away without having to, you know, dirty your fingers on tedious installation steps and configurations and stuff like that. You can just turn it on and let it go. Yep. Yeah, th- those are the types of things that I love where so many times it's, you know, whenever customers are evaluating OpenStack, you 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 want the as much of the time the you know, that's very finite that they have invested into evaluating it at runtime instead of spending a lot of time during the installation process. So, um, and that's where, you know, it's like some products could take a very long time to get installed and populated and, and up and running. So having an appliance that is like in the can ready to go um, is really cool. And I, I know OpenShift has a similar thing too where I can, I can go to the customer portal, pull down an OpenShift Enterprise um, live uh, CD that I could use um, in uh, to you know to kick the tires with OpenShift Enterprise as well, um, and it's it's good for developers too that want to develop on your laptop on an airplane or wherever, and then whenever they land, they could push it into their real Open OpenShift uh, Enterprise environment once they get network connectivity. Yeah, I remember back when I touched technology, uh, you know, helping customers install stuff like the Red Hat Network Satellite or, or uh, any other these kind of more complicated tools. I remember the the biggest danger was getting on site with the customer, bringing the CDs in, and uh, finding out that they hadn't set up a network yet. Oh uh, my gosh! Or, yeah, yeah, and it's terrible, right? And that's one of the things I love about these. Uh, these virtual appliances is allows customers to evaluate the products um, and you don't have to wait around for somebody to update DNS settings. Um, yep. So yeah, everybody wins. Everybody yep. wins. That's great. Um, so, Oh, and we had a new uh, cloud forms release uh, last yeah. week. Uh, yeah. So 3.3.1 is out. Yeah. So what's in that? Uh, so the, the, the one I'm, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, OpenShift support. Uh, so you can actually manage OpenShift through cloud forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really kind of mind-bending, um, and there's there's videos and stuff uh, showing how this works. But uh, basically, treating OpenShift uh, as a set of virtual machines, uh, and you can actually provision uh, provision new OpenShift applications using Cloud Forms. Uh, mm. It's super cool. Uh, a nice way of balancing the control between the developers and the and operations. Um, uh, it's a little bit down in the weeds, uh, but if you are intrigued at all uh, by this notion of OpenShift support uh, in CloudForms, you should uh, check out a video, which we'll include in the uh, in the show notes. Um, and Dave, I know this will warm your heart. Uh, they've mm-hmm. also included uh, better support for SE Linux uh, oh, and nice. also identity management. So uh, you, CloudForms can now use uh, RHEL's identity management uh, server as a uh, as a source of uh, authentication and uh, authorization. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Synergy, that's what we call it. So I, I got a question for you. I'm ready. Okay, so this goes back to Road Warrior travel, things like that. Um, I know we've been doing a lot with video conferencing at at Red Hat more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, that's allowed us to eliminate a lot of travel. Um, and yeah. yeah, so w- would you be willing up to give a level of status uh, to travel less? 
thanks to video uh, teleconferencing and other mechanisms? Yeah, not a hypothetical question. Uh, in fact, I was being on travel these last two weeks. I was looking over my schedule, and I came to realize that, Dave, my chairman status on U.S. Airways may be in danger. Really? Yeah, I may be in. I may be. I may be in serious trouble here. I may have to start paying for bags and stuff. Ugh. With I the know. rabble, yeah. With the rabble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, it's a trade I'm more than happy to make. Um, the video com- So we just started using a tool called Blue Jeans uh, at Red Hat, um, and uh, we're using it for uh, a lot of video conferences um, for a variety of reasons. Our IT folks prefer that to Google Hangouts and and, and other solutions like that. Um, There's been a bunch of great things about Blue Jeans. The first is the ability to record those video sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I run an office hours every week, as you know, Dave, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's like an open call. I usually have about 20, 30 people on it, and we just talk about the news of the day for an hour, Um, and because, most of the folks we work with are traveling. Uh, we can't all be on at the same time. And so it's easy to me to hit the record button and post a, post a video file uh, mm-hmm. internally. And people can go download that um, and watch it at their leisure, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. Also, the quality of video conferencing, it used to be that it was a lot more clumsy. Um, and it actually got in the way of collaboration versus making it better. Um, I don't know about you, Dave, but when I'm in a video conference, I'm paying a lot better attention. Um, you can't uh, you can't just dial into a conference call and do the dishes uh, while yes. somebody else is droning on about roadmaps. Um, if it's a video call, you are engaged because uh, yes. if you are not looking into the camera, people know it. Um, yes. And so I find the the kind of etiquette and the norms around video conferences are different, and it's and it's been interesting to see as a group how we're kind of learning what the rights and wrongs of video conferences are. Um, yes. Like. Uh, you know, muting, for instance, uh, which is, you know, this kind of constant problem on, on conference calls. Uh, there's an equivalent in video calls where you want to turn your camera off, right? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to sneeze and you don't want anybody to see that. Uh, but it's also like if you, if you turn your video feed off, it's suddenly conspicuous, right? Everybody knows that you've turned your video feed off. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's interesting to see kind of what becomes... Uh, what becomes acceptable behavior uh, yeah. using this new tool? I'm having a as a as a kind of pocket anthropologist. I'm I'm kind of enjoying it. Yeah. So do you? So with and that's what. Let me ask you this from an etiquette standpoint. Like what? What? And I'm sure that there is no golden rule yet of what the etiquette would be. But like, let's say your office hours, where there's like a bazillion people um, connected to the call. Should everybody be sharing their video or? Should it be like, oh, well, I have something that I say, so I turn my video on as, as a way to like raise my hand and say something. Um, but should I be mm-hmm. broadcasting by default or when I have something to say? And does it depend upon the size of the room? And if you want to have more people turn their cameras on, what what are some constructive ways to get people to do that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. Um, and you're right; I don't think that there is a golden rule yet. Um, I mean, my experience with you know twenty, thirty people being on the call is uh, some people like to have the video feed on uh, because mm-hmm. they like the kind of hangout nature of it. it mm-hmm. uh, especially for folks who are often remote, uh, it's great to have the video on because you feel kind of more engaged and kind of more connected to the to the group, which is which is great. Um, I find that other people do what you're saying is like they'll turn the video on. Uh, just before they want to ask a question as, as like you say, as a way of raising their hand, um, mm-hmm. which is great for me as a moderator, 
uh, because it helps me kind of manage the group, right? I can see, oh, okay, this guy looks like he's about to say something. This guy looks like he's about to say something instead of that, like, that terrible thing on conference calls where you go, like, anyone else? Any questions? Mm -hmm. No? Okay, let's move on. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. I got to, okay, you know, the, the, <laughs> having the, having, using video as a cue uh, kind of solves a lot of that. It, including video in the meetings is it, it improves the engagement. Um, it also allows for kind of nonverbal communication, uh, which is cool. Um, and it's, uh, it's frankly, I'm surprised it took us so long to adopt it. I know other companies have been using video conferencing for a long time, but the technology is, and the bandwidth is now at the point where it's so easy. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's gotten to the point where when I'm organizing a new meeting, uh, whereas before I would just drop in a conference call bridge number, um, I include both the video and the, uh, and the conference call bridge number. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm now video by default. Yeah. And in, in many ways I would just send the, the video link, which has a dial-in number, but people have to dig for it, um, to almost force people to use the, to not dial in and use a video app instead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But but going back to the travel elite status, um, mm -hmm. like in my case, I'm probably I'm you know like I'm typically at a certain level consistently every year, and it looks like this year I'm going to come in one level lower for both the hotel and the airline, and in many ways it's like that's fine with me. I don't care anymore because it, it's like the value of the of the um, uh, of those frequent flyer programs or frequent traveler programs are it's not worth it you know being away from your family and and being away from home and uh and you know it's just not that lucrative um anymore yeah. and like the the difference between say like gold and platinum is not that big of a difference for the level of effort you got to put in to get to that platinum status yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's also not a competition you want to win uh, because yeah. even if you win, you've lost, right? Because you're yeah. time away from your family and so far. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. So I'm a coffee fan, Dave. So I was intrigued when you were telling me about this elephant coffee. Uh, yep. So uh, uh, what, what do I need to know about elephant coffee? Well, there's so this is the number one most expensive uh, coffee in the world. Um, it's, it's about... Um, I guess a serving is five or six espresso cups, and it costs about seventy dollars. Whoa! Um, and and so the way they make it is that you get coffee beans, and then you get an elephant, and then you you put the coffee beans in say like some fruit. You feed that coffee bean infused uh, fruit to the elephant. You go to the other end of the elephant, and then you get the elephant's uh, poop, and then you pick out the coffee beans that came through. And and you make coffee out of them. That's amazing. Yeah, it makes and, uh, you want to have some coffee. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and there was a, well, there was another animal that they were doing this with earlier. It was like the I want to say a capybara, but that's not it. Uh, it was in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, they had an animal that would digest the coffee beans, and uh, that somehow made the coffee better or whatever. Um, and it. And I, I'll find a link to this, but it ended up having terrible effects on this animal uh, because they started raising the animal, uh, not, not, not from the coffee directly necessarily, uh, although I'm sure that they were highly caffeinated. Um, but uh, this animal uh, was 
suddenly raised in these pens, like in the like chicken style, um, yeah. where they would just keep them in cages and force feed them like uh, like foie gras. Like they would force feed these animals coffee, um, waiting for them to you know poop it out and then sell them for you know whatever seventy bucks a cup. Uh, and uh, so now, while it was originally a novelty and people were extolling the virtues of this digested coffee, uh, uh, there's people are now. Uh, frowning on the practice because they feel like uh, putting these animals in cages is uh, is a cruel thing to do and not something we should encourage. I don't feel like that's going to be a danger with this elephant thing. Yeah, well, at least not with me. Um, um, <laughs> um, yeah, and and it's it, it's a thing too that I, I agree with you that it's like it from a novelty standpoint. I could imagine that would be all right, but if they're wildly successful, you know, you'll have these elephant mills that just you know they get force fed coffee and. You know, it's just I, I can imagine that just sort of like it dying out because people would just be against it, I guess. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. maybe it's like the same people that have they could have this coffee with their uh, fagua. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, so which job, Dave, is worse, uh, being the bean picker or being the elephant? Yeah. Well, some days I, I feel like I'm a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> I sympathize. I sympathize. Yeah. Uh, this is a good note to good note to go out on. Oh, we we want to do one more thing. Um, uh, the the company announced last week uh, that uh, Brian Stevens, our CTO, uh, was leaving us, and uh, this was a big deal um, for Red Hat. Uh, Brian's been with us for for twelve years. Um, was in a lot of ways kind of the heart and soul of the engineering group, um, who he ran for years and years and years. Um, he. Uh, he's behind a lot of the mergers and acquisitions uh, that we've done um, and really just a celebrated figure uh, inside Red Hat. Uh, so we did want to take a second to uh, thank Brian uh, for all the work that he did and wish him very good luck uh, on his next endeavor. Yeah. 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 I know I've, I've always appreciated working with him and I'm, you know, looking at wherever he goes, that, that company is probably going to be a much better place because of, of him being at it. So, um, um, I look forward to working with him again. Yep, yep, I do too. I do too. All right, Dave. Uh, so, if people uh, want a link uh, to uh, animals being force-fed uh, coffee, uh, if they need a link to uh, Hardcore History, uh, a link to uh, Lauren's latest publications and engagements, uh, where, where do they go for that? Yeah, and the monkey picture. Um, and the monkey picture. Yep. Uh, they need to go to dgshow.org. So, D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Excellent. All right. Uh, have a good week, Dave. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.